Gentlemen, welcome back to the Renaissance. It's uh, is that the show we're doing? I think so. It's <laughs> Ray. Six years ago, yesterday, wow. my friend. Yes. In in my timeline, right. uh, <laughs> we spoke on Skype for the very first time. Right. And it was love at first sight. And I've got some. I've actually got a recording. I don't know if I've ever told you. No. This. Oh fuck no. I've got a recording of that uh, very first conversation. Let me just... I'm not going to play the no, whole no, thing. No, of course not. Because we were on Skype for like four hours that <laughs> night. But I'll just play... Um, Two hours of foreplay. Just a couple of clips. Right, right, yeah. right. My penis. Jesus. Pretty cozy. It's fun to talk about... So let's go with penises. In the eye of the beholder. You know, we're at each other's throats. You know, you've got abortion. <laughs> Damn, I am in the wrong country. It's gotten to the point now where it's just not worth it. My penis. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this, but if you can move off my penis, bigger, it's different. <laughs> what the fuck? I got this. That is all that matters. <laughs> my penis. That is all that matters. <laughs> Sometimes you have to hear it from someone else. Jesus. You know what? If you and I could get along, my penis. That's how I'm going to fight. So, hold on. My penis. They, they can handle it. My penis. They, they can handle it. You know, you've got abortion. <laughs> Believe it or not. I am fucking exhausted. So that's was, that was my uh, audition. Let's go with the penis. That was my audition tape. That was, that was just a couple of clips from our very first conversation, <laughs> and it was obviously meant to be. Right. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that you haven't regretted every day since then, but that was a good day. That was a good day. That was a good day, yeah. <laughs> you fooled me that day Boom. into thinking. Sucka! You. Yay, <laughs> <laughs> yay! Well, let's get yes. into the Renaissance, uh, yes. Ray. It's been a while since we've talked about the Medici, right. I think, uh, episode 52. Seven months and twenty-one <coughs> episodes ago, since we Side-tracked. covered what right. covered Cosimo uh, directly, right. he's propped up, of course, yes. indirectly here and there. Right. But <clears throat> I thought it was time that we picked up and told more of the Cosimo de Medici story. Right, I concur. Now, last time we finished in fourteen thirty-five, Cosimo, people may recall, returned from exile. Kicked out all of his enemies. He did a Michael Corleone. <laughs> right. He got rid of the five families and he didn't kill them. No. Didn't shoot them in no, the eye. No, he's a class but, act. Uh, he just exiled them yeah. from Florence. Yeah. Them and all their families and their families' families and their friends. <laughs> and their pets. <clears throat> and to be fair, they had exiled him, so right. it was sort of just payback. And... Yeah. He was in control of Florence. So what we want to talk about is what happened next yes. in Florence and for Cosimo de' Medici. We know that uh, when he exiled his enemies, he put Francesco Sforza, the 
mercenary for hire, the conductieri, yeah. on the payroll. Sure, good move. It was a good move. Well, in some ways, a good right. move. Uh, if, if you can't beat your enemies, just buy them off. I, I, I suspect that's a, that's a tactic that has been used a lot right. since those days. Yeah, I imagine Tony pulls that a lot, but what do I know? I'm a, I'm his friend. He's never offered me anything, so he must really genuinely like me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he paid for dinner for you at least <laughs> once or true. twice in Durham. That's true, or, or more. That's good point. Mm. Good point. By the way, I'm um, planning on uh, having the premiere of my film in Durham, North Carolina. Really? Or, or Charlotte, somewhere in North Carolina. Nice. Would you uh, Would you come? I would love. I will get a tuxedo. Or maybe one of those T-shirt tuxedos. Anyway, I will be there. I will be there. Thinking about, we want to launch it in the Bible Belt. And, uh, see I, you if know what? I, can survive I, that. I can't make it. I just remembered I have a thing. So <laughs> good luck with that. Mm, thanks. So four years after Cosimo uh, secured Florence, he also secured a major score. He hosted. The Great Ecumenical Council yeah, he did. that we briefly talked about when we were talking about Gutenberg. Mm-hmm. This is where the Catholic Church of Rome and the Orthodox Church of Constantinople decided to get together, yeah. have a series of powwows, <laughs> try and settle their differences. Right. And we, we don't need to go over it again, but I, I want to talk about it from... Cosimo's perspective. And I also though, want to provide one more piece of background on the Ecumenical Council. Okay. The reason the Pope was even open to meeting with his counterpart in the Eastern Church right. was that he was kind of being forced into it. Really? It wasn't because it was the right thing for Christianity <laughs> or because... Brotherly love. Jesus, right. Jesus was sad Aww. or anything no. like that. Remember, we've talked about this before. There was another ecumenical council going on at the time, the Council of Basel. Right. This was the one where the cardinals were trying to make the Pope their bitch again. (laughs) Right. People will recall that the Popes had sort of, there'd been in Avignon for a long time. And there was this big debate over who was more powerful the uh, the cardinals, which were still under the sway of the French king mm-hmm. to a large extent, although the popes since then had been trying to stack the deck with their own people. Right. But there was still this big debate over who should be really running the church. Was it a was is the church a, a monarchy? Yeah, or a oligarchy? Really? Right. Is it is it the cardinals that are in charge, or is it the pope? Should the pope be forced to do their bidding, uh, or is he the the big boss? Right. And now this Council of Basel, you might recall, was kicked off by William of Ockham, he of the razor, <clears throat> which is usually explained something like this. If there exist two explanations for an occurrence, the one that requires the smallest number of assumptions is usually correct. Right. So if I was the Pope at the time, Pope Gene Simmons, <laughs> I would say, well, <laughs> one Pope is smaller than a hundred cardinals, so go fuck yourselves, bitches. Yes, I'm not sure that's what he used as his argument, but that's what I would have gone with. But yeah, it's nothing more than a power play, let's be honest. 
Do the card- now, I have to ask, do the Cardinals represent the deep state? I mean, do you go with the do you give all the power to the guy who's in office? You don't know how he could be in office for a day, he could be in office for twenty years, or you do you give it to the body of men that are probably either more conservative or they're they're gonna be around longer because they don't have all that pressure? I just wonder if they represent the deep state in this scenario. Yeah, they were the deep state. They weren't elected. Right. They were appointed by a pope, and they had a lifetime appointment. Yeah. As you say, pope, popes at this stage were coming and going every three <laughs> or four years. Popes weren't lasting very long. Right, right. Um, they were lasting less time than one of your erections <laughs> that you get from your uh, erectile dysfunction medicine you've been hawking over in I, World War II. Show. I told you, it's not, and I've said this in many different ways, it's not the length, it's what you do with it while you have it. I'm getting a little mm. tired, and I can't believe I just said that because that's going on the soundboard. But I stick by it. <laughs> the only reason I'm still doing shows is to add things to the soundboard. My great joy in life is and just mine, to get you saying... Right. My penis. <laughs> Pretty cosy. They, they can handle it. Right. I, I took your advice. My penis. Um... <laughs> So what the Council of Basel was uh, talking about reconciling with the Eastern Church. Mm-hmm. And so Pope Gene Simmons was like, well, fuck that. If anyone's making a deal, it's me. Yeah. I'm the deal. I'm the deal maker. <laughs> I'm Dr. Love. Uh, Call me Dr. Yeah. Love. Now, of course, the East, as we've explained before, were desperate to make a deal, not because, again, of Jesus or anything, <laughs> but because they were terrified of the Ottomans. Oh. And so they were trying to uh, bring the two sides together so the Catholics, the West, Italy would come and support them uh, right. I- against the Muslims. And the, the Pope was only interested in it to get one up, really, on the uh, Council of Basel. Now, of course, the ecumenical council between East and West had originally been meeting in Ferrara, the uh, town in the north of Italy Mm -hmm. where they were busy trying to invent fast red (laughs) supercars. They they started meeting there in January of 1438. Right. Well, see, things don't always work out the way you want them to because they get there and one, they find out because um, of the location of where it's at, the cold winds are coming off of the the Alps. There's... uh, there, it's just not very pleasant. But here's the thing. Here's what I don't get. The Eastern Party from Constantinople, they don't come with 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 or 200 advisors. They come with a 700-person delegation, which included 23 bishops. I mean, someone's got to do the arguing. But the point is this town cannot handle 700 visitors from the East as well as the Pope's entourage. So this this is very quickly a miserable experience for everybody. They have no idea what to do. They can't house everybody. It's going to cost a fortune because the East is probably expecting for the um, for the host to pick up the tab. So it very quickly becomes expensive, unpleasant, crowded, and they re- this is not really conducive to working. But what's even more not conducive to working is getting the fucking plague. And the plague is going to make an appearance in this town, you know, soon after they get there. So this is just something that's not working out right off the bat. Yeah, the Byzantine emperor at the time was John the Eighth Paleologus, brother of Constantine the Eleven. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, here, who comes? Who comes next? He right. arrived with seven hundred people, as you say. Locked and, up. Uh, you know, I. I guess, you know, I've been in some meetings like that back in my Microsoft days where uh, IBM would come to meetings with 700 people, mostly lawyers. Uh, in this case, I think it was 23 bishops and a whole bunch of uh, Party. sexy slave girls right. and, and page boys to have sex with. Uh, no, that was the Catholics. Maybe they were for the Catholics. Probably a gift. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the Pope... Gene Simmons, who, by the way, was the last pope ever to use the name Eugenius. Good. I think that's good. Had to pay for the whole thing because, you know, my rule always, if I have visitors from out of town, right. unless they're podcast fans, <laughs> you know, my general rule is if a friend travels up to Brisbane, it's like you travel to me, yeah. I pay yes. for you were great. dinner. Yeah. Um, unless it's a podcast fans, because you know they want to pay, right? You know they're they, dying to. They want to get a they want to get a selfie. They want to pay for dinner. They want to suck my knob, right? And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not gay, but, <laughs> but if it I makes you happy, yeah, yeah, I'm here for you. I'll, yeah, I'll let you do it if it makes you happy. <laughs> you pay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was the same here. John uh, from Constantinople traveled. The Pope picks up the bill, but the problem is the Pope was broke for some reason. <laughs> so he borrowed 10,000 florins, uh, the equivalent oh, of $250,000 from Cosimo, oh, good. but burned through it like <laughs> Hunter Biden at a crack convention. So he borrowed another 10,000 florins from Cosimo, that fell into but the burned swamp. through that. <laughs> Sorry. Burned through that like Hunter Biden at a hooker convention. <laughs> and then, as you say, there was a breakout of the plague oh. at Ferrara. Probably probably those dirty Greeks. Yeah. Or it was Hunter Biden caught something at the hooker convention and spread it around. With a handshake. Cosimo, Cosimo said, look, just come to Florence. Come to Florence. Yeah, yeah. Lovely this time of year. Yeah. He even offered to pay... 1,500 florins a month, $40,000 a month to help cover expenses Woo. for as long as it took. Whatever. Here's my black credit card. Now, Go whatever. Yeah. yeah. Now, just, don't even need that. Just <laughs> drop my name. Uh, Cosimo said it was okay. The big C. Right. Yeah. Now, remember, Gene Simmons had been staying in Florence before when he was fighting with the Colonna family back in Rome. Right. He had to get out of Dodge for a while. Uh, so he was he was fairly comfortable in Florence. He and Cosimo knew each other well. Right. Uh, I think he was the guy that had helped Cosimo get the job back in the first place. Mm. Uh, but I wonder what kind of quarantine procedures Florence had in place. When you've got a couple of thousand people rocking up <laughs> and they're coming from a city where there's an outbreak of the plague... What? How? What do you... Do you just get everyone to wait outside the city yeah. gates for a month to see if uh, any of them have symptoms? Well, I, how do you think they do it? I, I think they have like 10,000 bottles of Purell out at the city gates and everybody has to lather up, at least do their hands uh, before they could come in. I don't know. That's just a guess. But I guess you really can't hold them up or stop them because they are there for this big council and you do have the 700 people from from uh, Constantinople. So I guess you let them in and you hope for the best. You hope God spares everybody. Do you have any record Mm. of anybody being held up or any measures taken? No. Yeah, no, fucking just come on in. Come on in. 
It was just, bu- it was bugging me. No one, no one seems to mention yeah. it in the books that I was reading. They were praying. You're inviting people to come from a place where there's an outbreak of the plague to come to your city. I'd be like, no, <laughs> no. You stand Meet outside. somewhere else, yeah. man. Yeah. I'll stand on the top Maybe of my wall it. and yell down at you and we'll talk. Yeah. Mm. So uh, in this instance, Cosimo uh, dispensed with his usual a caution yes. of not standing out. Sure. And had himself elected Gonfalonieri, the head of the Signoria, for the uh, occasion. Oh. So he could personally welcome both the Pope and the Emperor. Nice. The two heads of Christianity. Well, I guess the Emperor was sort of the head because it was still a Roman thing. Right. Um to the city. Perfect. The streets were decorated with flags. People lined the streets. People stood on balconies. Aww. But <clears throat> it didn't go as planned. No. No, it started raining, and then it rained harder, and then it rained a little harder, and then it rained fuck ton hard, and then the strong winds came. And so the people who were standing outside said, fuck this, ran inside, and pretty soon the entering party is pretty much left all alone they're probably shown into a side door somewhere, but by then the atmosphere is ruined. They are drenched. Some of them probably got colds for all I know or sniffles from all the rain or whatever. But the point is this grand entrance that that uh, Cosimo had planned for, even like you said, he, came, he comes out from the shadows to be the official leader of Florence. It's all ruined. But, you know, these are grown men. These are worldly men. You get past that stuff because at some point you've got to get down to work. You're there for a specific reason. But, yeah, it was kind of shitty that God uh, pissed, literally pissed from the clouds all over Cosimo's big moment. Do you know what else was hard? My penis. Uh, So. (laughs) I must have taken a pill. Yeah. (laughs) Stop doing ads on this show. (laughs) I don't see any of that money. I can show you my penis. Is that? Yeah. No. (laughs) No. Look, it's in front of the camera. Ooh. Had to Ooh. had to look hard. Had to pull out my <laughs> iPhone magnifying glass. I'll take another uh, pill. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you hate it when you wake up in the morning and your penis is, you know, touching your chest and you're like, oh, I can't even turn my head. I can't roll over my stomach. There's there are downsides to these pills. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I hate it when I wake up in the morning and your penis is touching my chest. Oh, we both know that's not true. Anyway. So they kicked off the next round of East-West negotiations. Now, the uh, contemporary Florentine book dealer we've mentioned before, Vespasiano de Bestici, recorded in his memoirs, on a sober day, the Pope, with all the court of Rome... The emperor of the Greeks and all the bishops and prelates assembled in Santa Maria del Fiore, where had been made a goodly arrangement for placing and seating the prelates of each church. Oh, nice. So they they met in the Duomo, under the dome mm-hmm. of Brunelleschi, and they started trying to hash it out. Now, I have some more information on Vespasiano. Oh. Um, 
maybe I haven't mentioned him before. Maybe this is where I'm mentioning him before. He <laughs> helped Cosimo. Right. I, I Facebooked about him. That's why I think I talked about him. Right. He helped Cosimo build his Laurentian library. Nice. He helped Pope Nicky build the Vatican library. So Ooh, he was uh, the guy. Like one of the. He was the guy. Yeah. If you want to know anything to do with books, you went to Vespasiano de Bastici. Right. But he retired from the book game in 1480 in disgust Uh because he thought the printing press was ruining books. The Germans. I remember (laughs) when we had to write books with our fucking hands. Then you kids come along with your fancy technology. Your apps and you ruin everything. You ruin everything. I had to walk 10 miles in the snow write it by hand and then r- walk 10 miles. But I mean, yeah, but I imagine that would, I mean, his entire, from what I read, he was the preeminent book dealer of Florence, which is saying something. And then suddenly Gutenberg comes along and ruins his whole world. I mean, I imagine he was disgusted by that. I'm surprised he didn't sue Gutenberg <laughs> for running him out of business, like the taxi industry. Everybody in else, Uber. everybody else sued him. He's like, yeah. There used to be one copy of Cicero in Florence. And if you wanted a copy, you had to come to me and pay me to pay someone to spend six months copying it out. Now, (laughs) Now. you can just get one printed in a day. A couple of presses. What the fuck is up Mm. with that? Yeah. Where's the dignity in that? Technology put him out of business. Now, he, his memoirs mm-hmm. uh, were forgotten until oh. good old boy Cardinal Angelo Mai, the guy we've mentioned before because he discovered the only surviving copy of Cicero's De Repubblica. Right. Which I think was uh, somebody had scratched it out and written St. Augustine's uh, yeah. Dick uh, move. thing on it. Yeah. Right. He, he also discovered... Vespasiano's memoirs in the Vatican Library in 1839, which is ironic because Vespasiano helped Pope Nicky build the Vatican Library. And then, I guess it's not ironic, but it's nice. It's a a nice... uh, Bookend. Coincidence, yes, that the only copy of his memoirs, which is one of the, the, you know, the, the, the only surviving contemporary works of this period of Florence... Um, you know, was found there. Yeah. Now, now Jacob Burkhart, the famous Renaissance scholar, who guy who really popularized the Renaissance as a period in the late nineteenth century, he got a copy of Vespasia, Vespasiano's memoirs mm-hmm. when they were finally printed uh, in the middle of the eighteen hundreds was so inspired by it that he wrote his book about the Italian Renaissance that came out in 1860, which was the first Ooh. sort of major book on the subject that really kicked off uh, an interest in the Renaissance as a defined period and an important period. So, um, yeah, so that's nice. nice. It's because of the Cardinal discovered Vespasiano Mm -hmm. that we are here doing this podcast today. Well, I was going to say that guy writes the first book. We come along, do the podcast and there will be nothing more to say about the Renaissance once Mm -hmm. we're done. So bookends. Mm -hmm. That's nice. That's assuming we, uh, (laughs) we, we survive this. Depends on how many pills I take. Cause it's yeah. Anyway. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Heart medicine. Um, I know you didn't. You haven't watched uh, the Deuce, no. right? But the last season no, of I the Deuce is set in the. Set, there's another one for the soundboard. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, the last season set in the mid 80s great show just finished like its whole run fantastic show but the last season is the mid 80s and uh, one of the characters in it who runs a brothel he's got a his son who's a stockbroker right um, in the sort of, sort of uh, Gordon Gecko style <laughs> and uh, hair slicked back braces stripy shirt yeah. uh, French cuffs and he's short. He tells his dad that he's got a great way to make a lot of money. He's going to short uh, stock from a company that's developed a new heart medication that right. uh, they think is going to be a big failure. So they're shorting the stock. Right. Uh, of course, that company, you know, the heart medicine turned out to be Viagra. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Fucked up in reverse. By the way, the, the, right. the guy who plays the son is James Gandolfini's son, who is playing uh, the same actor, James Gandolfini's son, is playing the young Tony Soprano in the uh, Sopranos prequel right. that David Chase is coming out with. Nice. This year, the Man- Many Saints of Newark. Right, nice. Looking forward to that. Anyway, so they're all sitting around in the Duomo, mm-hmm. arguing over silly shit, <laughs> uh, the Feloque... We talked about yeah, last time, the bread, you know, the, the, the fuck. is Jesus God right. or is he like God or favoured by God and the bread and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a great story. I don't know if you, did you come across the story about the Greek guy who was uh, trying to prove his point and fucked up? No, please tell me. There's this one story about, there was one of the Greeks who was, you know, he was standing up, he was uh, uh, trying to make the case for the Greek side of the argument. Right. Which was which were right. The Greeks were right, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I know you don't everyone change wants anything. to everyone wants to know Cam's opinion on this, right. uh, because I'm the world's leading expert sure, in early Christianity. Sure. You know, the Greeks were right. Uh, yeah. the, if you go back, the, the oldest surviving uh, documents that we have in terms of the way that Jesus was viewed, just look at the gospel according to Mark. Jesus in that is viewed as just a guy. Right. He's not He's not divine, he's just a guy. Right. Which was the position of the, the Greek Orthodox. Um, anyway, he's this guy's thing up, he's presenting, he's reading from this ancient document to try and back up his story, except he's, he's halfway through the document and he's reading out loud, he suddenly realised <laughs> that what he was reading was actually making the opposite point, the Catholic's point. So he quickly tried to scratch out the ink on this ancient <gasps> document, like this thousand-year-old document yeah. and to write over the top of it. And so there was a whole uproar. People were going, hey, hey, <laughs> fucking stop. What? Hey, no, That's stop it. History, his. bitch. Um, yeah. So he said, look, look, sorry, uh, <laughs> I brought the wrong document. Sorry. Uh, let's, put, let's put this whole thing on hold <laughs> until I can have the right one sent over from Constantinople, to which... A Roman cardinal uh-huh. supposedly replied with a rim shot, Sire, when you go to war, you should take your arms with you and not send for them in the middle of the battle. Right. I knew that they had forgotten some, some important documents to back up their various arguments. And I just want to say to that one guy, you know, you had one fucking job 
Grab a ball of papers, yeah. put them in the chest, put them on the ship. Let's fucking go. Chop, chop. One job. They brought the monkeys. They brought the fucking cheetahs and the birds, but they didn't bring the documents. <laughs> yeah, well, they had their priorities. <laughs> you know, you want to make sure you take the monkeys and you the cheetahs. Got to be flashy. All right. Sorry. You want to talk about the monkeys and the cheetahs? Which I just, yeah, no, when we were talking about the various works of art, God, I can't remember when, a couple of months ago. And there was one particular painting. I'm sorry that I can't remember which one. Hopefully you do. But there was cheetahs and, and beautifully plumaged birds and uh, monkeys. And they were like, where in the fuck do they see these things? Now we know because they were brought from Constantinople during this um, this great council. And a lot of the artists in Florence you know, were able to view these things up close and personal. And uh, they were able to later put them in their art. So they brought these exotic animals, which wowed the people. Not only that, but a lot of people, obviously, from different parts of the empire were coming, which the Florentines were probably amazed at. But yeah, so it, they got a glimpse into this other part of the world and they were able to incorporate it into their art. Yeah, they the Greeks came with... Uh black African attendants yeah. and Tatar attendants that I guess the Russians brought with them. They um, not only brought all of these strange and exotic humans and animals, exotically plumed singing birds in cages, right. but they also brought their taste in food, which had a huge impact on Florentine cooking. <laughs> Someone noticed that the Byzantine emperor liked his eggs done in a particular way, uh-huh. cracked into a hot pan, stirred with a few herbs and spices, and then dropped onto his plate. And so that's how the Florentines discovered scrambled eggs. Now, not eggs Florentine, I want to point (laughs) out. Eggs Florentine is just eggs on a bed of spinach, sometimes with a, a Bernays sauce on it. But anything on spinach is called a la Florentine. Do you know why, Ray? Did they fucking grow spinach? Was Popeye from there? No, I I don't know why. Please tell me. (laughs) Well, it comes from a French queen, Catherine de Medici, uh, born in Florence. And Mm. in 1533, she married Henri, the second son of King Francois I. He was the heir apparent to the French throne, known as the Dauphin or Dauphin in those days. Right. When he became king in 1547, Catherine became the Queen of France. Now, she was paranoid that she was going to get poisoned sure. by the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the enemies to the French throne. Right. So she brought her own cooks from Florence who apparently also brought spinach seeds to grow. And she she liked the spinach. Oh. She liked she knew she needed to get a lot of iron right. in a diet. So she had her cooks make dishes with spinach, and that sort of became popular enough in France that it was known as spinach a la Florentine. Ooh. And eventually just a la Florentine. Now, Catherine de' Medici is also famous for having introduced other aspects of table etiquette in France, including Mm -hmm. introducing the fork. Fork, She apparently used to, she she used to walk up to people and go, hey, you want a fork? (laughs) And they'd go, yes, my lady, yes. And she'd go, "Ah." whatever. She'd pull this thing out and they'd go, Uh, oh, uh, what the fuck? (laughs) Sacre bleu, what is that? (laughs) 
She goes, this you... is a fork. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Why, did, why, <laughs> what, what is, what is that uh, in your pants, my lord? My penis. Oh, well. I, uh, perhaps it was a why, fork. Why do you? So let's go with penises. <laughs> she goes, oh, no, no, I was just going to show you how to eat like a civilized person. Jesus. <laughs> no, please tell me. Um, shock gasp no I did not can you tell me about him (laughs) what I was in the wrong spot yes you were in the wrong spot she said (laughs) Um, forks nice now spinach itself gets its name from the old Persian word aspanak Right. It's believed to have originated in Persia and, in fact, still grows wild in Iran, Ray. Oh. has been cultivated there for over 2,000 years. Damn. It was introduced into China as early as 647 BCE. Wow. Did not reach Europe until the 9th century when the Saracens invaded Sicily. Then Arabs brought it to Spain in the 11th century. It reached England by the mid-1500s. But uh, in those days, it was called spinach or spinaches. (coughs) Snoochie boochies. (laughs) I think our next show will be the history of food. There's already a show that Chrissy listens to. Never mind. uh, That does that. Yeah, which she loves. Okay. She's always like, cool. oh, listen to this great history podcast. I'm like, shut up. Like, you don't listen to any of my history <laughs> podcasts. I don't, I don't fucking care. I do want to ask real quick, if there was going to be a great podcast convention and you came representing Australia and you were going to meet with Mike Duncan, would you bring 700 people in your entourage? Or, or how do you feel you would be best represented? You know, who would you rock up to, rock up with? you know, for a great podcasting conference. No one. I, I don't have, I don't have seven friends. <laughs> 700. No, you know, I, because the, uh, the Byzantines came with 700 people. I was just wondering what you would feel would be maybe perhaps too showy, but I have my answer now. Yeah. No, yeah. I, my, my, uh, you know, my idea of conferences is I don't go to them because they, I don't like people basically. <laughs> Oh, you don't have to tell me, my friend. I yeah. Know. Yeah. Uh, Just a microphone. Fucking people. Yeah. <laughs> fucking people. <laughs> fucking people, man. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> back to Florence. Yes. So, in the evenings, the uh, visiting Greek scholars would give lectures on things like theology and philosophy Ooh, to the Florentines. Right. And one popular guy was... Gemistos Pleton. Oh, nice. Did you read up on Gemistos Pleton in your extensive research, I, Ray? I, di- I wouldn't use the word extensive. I did, um, but I think, have you mentioned his what he was talking about when he was describing, you know, because obviously this guy was the guy when it comes to Plato. So he would sit around and he would amaze all of the Florentines talking about um, Plato's philosophy. Didn't you mention previously the whole thing about his, you know, his way of explaining it was the whole dark cave thing? I, I thought you'd mentioned that before. Um, but if you want to tell that story, I would be willing to listen. But I honestly can't remember if you told it before. 
I've heard the name. Who is he? <laughs> In other words, I've probably mentioned Plato's allegory of the cave right. somewhere before. It's probably the most one of the most famous uh, things in in philosophy. Yeah, so Gemistos Plethon was like the world's leading expert in Plato, on Plato at the time. And, and the Florentines, the Italians, didn't know much about Plato. Mm-hmm. They were big into Aristotle, they were big into Cicero, but not much of Plato had survived in Latin. Oh. But the Greeks knew their Plato. Mm-hmm. They had all the Plato. Yeah, they... Yeah, they all the Plato in the world. They had right. Plato to spare. <laughs> plates and plates of Plato they had. Right. And uh, Plethon was a secular scholar. He wasn't a religious scholar, so he wasn't really needed at the council. So he would just sit around talking Plato <laughs> to the Florentine humanists and explaining the differences between Plato and Aristotle and why, in his opinion, Plato was the better philosopher. Ooh. Uh, now... Plato's writings weren't very well known, as I said, and and Plethon was trying to fix that gap while he was there. His name, by the way, is a name he chose later in life as an homage to Plato. He was, uh, Plethon was like the the Plato guy, was basically what Plethon meant. Gotcha. Okay. Now, Cosimo uh, and his humanist friends were, were in awe of Plethon. They were fascinated by Plato and... You know, this is something that's going to have a big impact on Cosimo's life, as we'll yeah. see uh, over the next couple of episodes. And and what again, one of the fascinating things about Cosimo is he's not only a banker and a businessman and a political leader, but he's also obviously deeply, deeply, genuinely fascinated in philosophy and the arts mm-hmm. and and um, all of this kind of stuff. So the Plethon explained the allegory of the cave. Now, let me read it in full. This is from Plato. Okay. Imagine human beings living in an underground den, which is open towards the light. They have been there from childhood, having their necks and legs chained and can only see into the den. Mm. At a distance, there's a fire, and between the fire and the prisoners, a raised way and a low wall is built along the way, like the screen over which marionette players show their puppets. Behind the wall appear moving figures who hold in their hands various works of art, and among them images of men and animals, wood and stone, and some of the passers-by are talking and others silent. A strange parable, he said, and strange captives. They are ourselves, I replied. And they only... He's, he's, you know, he's telling this story in, in this book. This is a conversation between guys. Right. They are ourselves, I replied, and they see only the shadows of the images which the fire throws on the wall of the den. Mm-hmm. To these they give names, and if we add an echo which returns from the wall, the voices of the passengers will seem to proceed from the shadows. Suppose now that you suddenly turn them round and make them look. Oh, right on cue. Fucking win. Right on cue. Fucking guy. It's a conspiracy. Mm. I bet Mike Duncan hired that guy. Oh, man. 
Suppose now that you suddenly turn them around and make them look with pain and grief to themselves at the real images. Will they believe them to be real? Mm. Will not their eyes be dazzled and will they not try to get away from the light to something which they are able to behold without blinking? And suppose further that they are dragged up a steep and rugged ascent into the presence of the sun himself. Will not their sight be darkened with the excess of light? Some time will pass before they get the habit of perceiving at all. And at first they will be able to perceive only the shadows and reflections in the water. Then they will recognise the moon and the stars and will at length behold the sun in his own proper place as he is. Last of all, they will conclude... This is he who gives us the year and the seasons and is the author of all that we see. How will they rejoice in passing from darkness to light? How worthless to them will seem the honours and glories of the den. But now imagine further that they descend back into their old habitations. Mm -hmm. In that underground dwelling, they will not see as well as their fellows and will not be able to compete with them in the measurement of the shadows on the wall. There will be many jokes about the man who went on a visit to the sun and lost his eyes. And if they find anybody trying to set free and enlighten one of their number, they will put him to death if they can catch him. Now the cave or den is the world of sight. The fire is the sun. The way upwards is the way to knowledge. And in the world of knowledge, the idea of good is last seen and with difficulty. But when seen is inferred to be the author of good and right. Parent of the Lord of light in this world and of truth and understanding in the other. He who attains to the beatific vision is always going upwards. He is unwilling to descend into political assemblies and courts of law for his eyes are apt to blink at the images or shadows of images which they behold in them. He cannot enter into the ideas of those who have never in their lives understood the relation of the shadow to the substance. But blindness is of two kinds and may be caused either by passing out of darkness into light or out of light into darkness. Mm. And a man of sense will distinguish between them and will not laugh equally at both of them. But the blindness which arises from fullness of light, he will deem blessed and pity the other. Or if he laugh at the puzzled soul looking at the sun, he will have more reason to laugh than the inhabitants of the den at those who descend from above. There is a further lesson taught by this parable of ours. Some persons fancy that instruction is like giving eyes to the blind, but we say that the faculty of sight was always there and that the soul only requires to be turned around towards the light. Impressive. What, 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 what's your interpret? Interpret that for us. Oh, God. Oh, Ray, <laughs> master of Plato. So the people see the shadows on the wall, and I, I'm assuming they think that's the entirety of what the world is, knowing that there's so much more to it that they probably don't understand, um, and they need to turn and face the light, which I guess is more than just light, obviously, but knowledge and the way things really work, and that all comes from God, and they will never truly understand everything. Um, I can't help but think that religion is the darkness, and truth, facts, and science is the light, but that's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? So are, do, are people to somehow be led out of the cave or towards the light to understand 
how things really are, not to be tricked by the mere shadows on the walls, which is not reality, but just, um, but that's just currently what they can see from their sitting position facing the wall. I think it's it's oh, well, it's a parable, yeah, obviously. Right. I think what he's saying, my interpretation of what he's saying, mm. think of it from a three illusions perspective. Right. He's saying that you think that the world is real. You think that the objects that you see are real. You have this interpretation based on your senses right. of the world and yourself in the in the world. But really, what you're seeing is. A uh, phenomenon of a deeper reality. Okay. And the deeper reality, so in the three illusions, I say the deeper reality is it's all just atoms and there's no separation between this, that, and the other, between you and the objects around you at, a, at an atomic and a subatomic level. It's all just one thing. It's one thing appearing as many things mm-hmm. to your senses because your senses... Uh, are finely tuned enough to see down at the lower level. Right. So what he's saying is that uh, when you when you go out into the light, when you see the real basis of everything, you realise that the the shadows on the wall are just illusions. Ah. So between. But if go ahead, sorry, go ahead. When you go down and try and tell people that, they'll laugh at you because all they are aware of are the illusions, the shadows on the wall. That's their reality. Right. Um, but all you need to do is turn them towards the light, and they will see the actual reality if they have the, I guess, the courage. The, the intelligence yeah. and the, the yeah the courage and and the ability to let go of their illusions. They will see it for themselves. It's not a. It's not um, a, a guaranteed thing necessarily. Yeah. No, I was going to say uh, it's it's not a it's not a, a new knowledge or it's not a new um, skill. Right. You know, the, they just they can already see it. They just need to look in the right direction. They just need to yeah. think about the fact that everything that they think is solid and real is really not. Anyway, that's Plato's allegory of the cave, written. <laughs> You know, sort of in the the 300s BCE, 400 BCE, Mm -hmm. somewhere in the 3rd century BCE anyway. So between Plato and Lucretius, they pretty much fucking figured things out a long time ago. And then the church comes along, religion in general comes along and fucks it up. Just an observation. Mm. Yeah, well, they had religion then as well. That's true. Which is what... Yeah, you know, Lucretius and the the Stoics and the Epicureans were fighting against in their own day, but you know it was different. It was yeah. you know the pagan worship where they still worship the gods. Right. These guys were philosophers, though they were seeking truth. They weren't interested in just worshiping gods for the sake of it. They were trying to get to the truth underneath reality. Right. Sounds like they did. So, yeah, there you go. Pretty good job. So as you can imagine, when Cosimo and his um fellow humanists are listening to this. I mean, Cosimo's got to be sitting there going, you know, I don't consider myself that naive person maybe staring at the shadows. You know, he is a, a pretty worldly man. And I, if I remember correctly, when he was younger, he did want to go on several excursions um, with humanists or with his humanist friends. And his father wouldn't let him because he wanted him to focus on business. So maybe 
all these evening chats after all the arguing was done with the day and they had the nice meals and their hookers or whatever, I mean, they had all these talks. Maybe that stirred something in him, but you know, at the end of the day, he is a businessman. He is a product of what his father did to him. But I think he, I think this does move him and inspire him to, like you said, he is a businessman, but he also is fascinated by the humanists, the philosophy, the ancients. And so maybe it stirs him to do something more with his time and money, however much of his time he has left. Maybe there's something more he can do than just pay for things. Maybe there's more that he can pursue as far as knowledge goes. And Plato might be the way to do it. Hmm. Yeah, he does go on, Cosimo, a couple of decades later and apparently established the Platonic Academy in Florence, although modern scholars now debate the existence of the Platonic Academy, whether or not it was an actual thing. Uh But uh, there does seem to be plenty of evidence that humanists in Cosimo's circle sat around and discussed Plato, whether or not there was an actual school platonic school or not right. uh, apparently there's not a lot of evidence for that but it's mentioned in a lot of the uh, older histories of the period but getting back before we move yeah. on from Platon, um he told them all that plato's idea of god was closer to christianity than aristotle's mm. and uh, you know there's a lot in plato's timaeus i think where he talks about something that Sounds like the Holy Ghost uh, for uh, Christians, basically this uh, force in the universe that creates all things. Right. Um, but Plato, uh, Plathon secretly was a pagan. <laughs> According to the Greek scholar George of Trebizond, who was with him at Florence, he said, I heard him myself at Florence asserting that in a few more years, the whole world would accept one and the same religion, with one mind, one intelligence, one teaching. And when I asked him, Christ's or Muhammad's, he said neither, but it will not differ much from paganism. I was so shocked by these words that I hated him ever after and feared him like a poisonous viper, and I could no longer bear to see or hear him. I heard, too, from a number of Greeks who escaped here from the Peloponnese that he openly said before he died that not many years after his death, Muhammad and Christ would collapse and the true truth would shine through every region of the globe. Mm. And after he died, around 1454, his last book, The Book of Laws, which he'd only given to select friends while he was alive, was discovered... And in it, apparently, he sort of combined pagan worship with Stoicism, Mm -hmm. believed that the universe had no beginning or end, that it had been created perfect, nothing could be added to it. And he had a whole plan for reorganizing the Byzantine Empire around Stoicism. Uh, unfortunately, the only known copy of it was burnt in 1460 because of its heresy. Yes, it's got to go. But a summary of it survives. Uh, his summary of it survives. He sort of wrote down the sort of chapter headings and uh, oh, what the chapters were about. Right. Huh. Um, but yeah, there you go. So this guy had had a big plan for getting rid of all the world's Abrahamic religions. Oh, well. Making it a better place. Oh, well. So just to wrap up, uh, yeah, the, the, 
interesting thing is that these Greeks coming to Florence had a huge impact on Florence, uh, not only spreading the teachings of Plato and the establishment of something like the Platonic Academy by Cosimo later on. Right. Cosimo also commissioned the Catholic priest and his good friend Marsilio Ficino mm -hmm. to translate into Latin all of Plato's works yeah. and the Enneads of Plotinus, who was one of the greatest Platonic scholars. Ficino supposedly ran the Platonic Academy, right. if it in fact existed, and he was later accused of heresy by Pope Innocent VIII <laughs> for having an interest in astrology. Fuck. And uh, there's a bust of him, the Ficino, this is, in uh, the Duomo. Nice. So, Deserves it. So anyway, point is that the Greeks came and as a result, they brought lots of books with them as well that like start works of Plato and uh, had a big impact in bringing back these lost literary treasures mm -hmm. lost in the West, survived in the East. They brought them back all because Cosimo <laughs> said, sure, I'll pay for your ecumenical <laughs> council. Yeah. Come to Florence. Play free. And, um, yeah. you know... Thanks to him, right. uh, Plato became a big thing in Renaissance Florence. Yeah. So the good news is the council goes on for about four months. They do come up with the formula. We probably covered this before. I don't have the details. Um, I certainly would be interested in, if you do, Cam, but they seem to have worked something out. I don't know about the bread. I don't know if the Holy Ghost comes from just God or God and the Son, whatever. But they seem to have worked out a mission, or not a mission statement, but a compromise statement that both sides could live with and sign. Yeah, they did. Um, as we mentioned, I think, in an earlier episode, one of the Gutenberg episodes, mm. the council was surprisingly successful. And in 1439, they agreed to unify under the Vatican. Nice. They agreed to compromise uh, on the Holy Ghost. Now, <laughs> can you do that? If I have, if I have one rule in life, right, right? it's to n never compromise no. on three things: scotch, right, cigars, right, and the Holy Ghost. Well, they go together. Yeah, the scotch, the scotch has to be a single malt, right? Don't drink this blend shit, and you never mix your single malt. With anything. In fact, when my mother was here for my birthday, she bought me my annual bottle of scotch. Um, and then I went to pour a glass for her and she said, Can I can I put some can I have some coke in that? No. And I said, No. Fucking crazy. No, you cannot. Are you fucking insane? Get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Except for Christ. she's tough. She's tough. Yeah. But still, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I take your point. Tough, yeah. I take your point. Never compromise on cigars. You gotta have only I, I look. I, I will smoke a Cuban every now and again, but I prefer Nicaraguan cigars because mm -hmm. they're uh, made for real men. Cuban <laughs> cigars are a little bit girly these days. Um, and your Holy Ghost. Yeah. Like I like my Holy Ghost uh, holy. pure. Pure. I'm not going to compromise on my Holy Ghost. Right. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't blame you. By the way, I, I'm not sure if you know what the Holy Ghost is, but when I when I refer to the Holy Ghost, what I'm talking about is... My penis. So <laughs> Me too. 
Me too. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, baby. <laughs> so that's just me. I have standards. Right. <laughs> so they they come up with this agreement. They sign. They take pictures. They put it on Facebook and Twitter. It's all over the place. And John the Eighth goes back to Constantinople, just knowing everything's going to be fine, and soon Europe will be sending him troops at Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire. Even though it's shrunk a little bit by now, it's going to survive. If you're 13 and you're willing, I'll do it. No, my penis. <laughs> um, mix and match. Yeah, so there was much rejoicing, uh, <laughs> much much sex with underage boys, Yay! well, at least by the Catholics. Right. Um, the Greeks were probably more into anal. Or their monkeys. Big party. Right. In- <laughs> <laughs> monkey sex. Have you ever had monkey sex? And that's not a euphemism. That's, that's why they kept the monkeys around. It makes sense now. Those were the real things. It doesn't get talked about in the issues, but the real things they were talking about right. was... Is that uh, wrong? Because someone had told me. They would, yeah. they would start, you know, the every day with, now to, to talk about the Holy Ghost and the Philoque, and until the until the audience, the masses would go, oh, fuck, fuck this not this again. Board. And they would leave and they go, they're gone? Have they gone? <laughs> they, they left? All right, close the doors, close the doors. Right, so... <laughs> Tell me again about sex with monkeys. Like, seriously. Uh, like, how do, how are, is it better than sex with 10-year-old boys? Are they, Cause are they twitchy? The, Tell me. I, yeah, the tail. What do you do with the tail? Does it, does I mean, it get it, on the way? Is it like a French tickler? I mean, what? I don't... Tell me. It's a fluffer. It's a fluffer. <laughs> oh, wait. They're, they're coming back. Okay. Uh, oh, anyway. well, well, I conclude with the Holy Ghost segment by saying... It's really the, just the name that I use for my penis. So, you know, that is all that matters. <laughs> they, they left you again. You know what? If you and I could get along, <laughs> I mean, if I have to be somebody, why aren't we getting along? Fuck, we could rule the world. I mean, this would be great. What the fuck? That's what they were talking about, <laughs> right? Um, so. Yeah, so that was that. But it was all for nothing, as we explained last time, because when the Emperor John VIII Paleologus sailed back to Constantinople Mm -hmm. and told his people, uh, got some good news and some bad news. Uh, Which would you like first? They said, uh, the good news? (laughs) The good news is uh, you're all now Catholics. We worked this shit out. You're welcome. No, the the good news is Italy is sending troops to defend us from the Turks. Hooray. What's the bad news? Well, you all have to become Catholics. <laughs> better dead def- from the Turks than a Catholic. Better dead than red. <laughs> Amen. You say, what's a red? Well, it's a, it's a pope. It's, it's Catholic. The, it's the color of his um, robe. I don't know. But the point is, fuck them. Have you ever had sex with a 10-year-old boy? <laughs> no. Um, no. No. That's where the red no. comes in. That's no. uh, uh, why we chose it as our as a colour. You don't even want to know what we chose for the flag. The Cardinals. Anyway. The Cardinals, Cardinals wear red uh, robes. She can't tell. That's why. Yeah. So you can't see Camouflage. the blood. <laughs> Camouflage. We are going to hell. Oh, my God. <laughs> Forget, 
forgive me, Lord, for Cam has sinned. Shit, it's funny because it's true. Um, God, Emperor John's people went apeshit because uh, they said they'd rather be killed by Muslims than become Catholics. Right. So... It was all for nothing, and a little over a decade later, as we know, Constantinople fell yeah. to the Ottomans. Yes. Gone. But here's the thing. Yeah. A lot of the Greek scholars in Constantinople fled right. before the walls fell, and where did they go? Back to Florence, mm-hmm. which had become a refuge for Greek scholars, uh, it caused a bit of a sort of a, a craze for all things right. Greek, anal, lots of anal <laughs> going on over there. There was, there was uh, olives and feta and anal. Yeah, the three great <laughs> contributions of Greek civilization. Well, democracy, but they already had that. I said, what else you got? Well, anal. I got, take your pants um, off and I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and they brought with them lots of these these uh, ancient documents that were in right. Greek. And, and so then what happened in Florence is Greek became very fashionable. Some upper-class children be, were being taught ancient Greek. The ability to converse in Greek was considered the height of intellectual fashion. La la. And at some point around this period, some people in Florence started to describe what was happening as a rinascimento. Mm. Rinascimento, or a, a renaissance, or a rebirth of the ancient learning. And so that word, rinascimento, first started appearing in the writings of the 16th century Florentine artist and biographer Vasari. Mm-hmm. But he seems to suggest that it had been used for quite some time when he used it. In, I, I pulled out my copy of Vasari's Lives of the Artists right. and he says in it, we will proceed to deal with clearer questions, namely the rise of the arts to perfection, their decline and their restoration or rather renaissance. Nice. The word didn't arrive in France, though, until the 19th century when people like uh, Jacob Berthardt started writing books. Then it spread to Britain and Germany in the middle of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's when people started to think of this period as an age in and of itself. Specific, yes. So it all worked out for Florence. Good for them. Not so much for Constantinople. Well, you know, it had its own benefits, you know. The Muslims, you know, the Muslims in the Golden Age uh, had a lot of documents as well. They, they, as we know, uh, were great lovers of science and philosophy mm-hmm. and uh, history and medicine. So the Muslims contributed a lot to the Renaissance. Right. That's true. Of course, they had, okay, well, that's... They had to kill a bunch of people that's first. The show. But anyway, yes. Yeah, well, that's... that's it's fun to talk about my penis. <laughs> okay, we'll be back next week. You're doing pretty good. Why does it have to be confrontation, uh, conversa- confrontational? 
penis in the eye of the beholder.